welcome to Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. In each episode, I delve into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. This week is part two in the story of the Gang of Neville. Before I continue with our story, I think I'd need a quick recap of episode one. In March 1982, a group of three men called the Old Man, the Giant and the Killer terrorised the outskirts of Brussels and the areas throughout Belgium on a murder and robbing spree seemingly without any motive. In the wake of their crimes, unsuspecting members of the public and police officers with no identifiable links to any criminality were murdered on the back of the gang's crimes. We left off at the end of episode 1 on September 17th, 1983 with the murder of Jacques Flores and Elsie DeWitt at a petrol station in the Vils just after 1 o'clock in the morning. As two police officers arrived on the scene some 20 minutes later, they became involved in a firefight with the gang, which left one dead and the other seriously injured. Again, the gang escaped into the night. At this point, some 18 months after the gang first appeared, the police have no motive, no leads, no names of any possible suspects, the connection the group may have to any other criminal faction, and most importantly, where they were going to hit next. During the three-year period in which the gang were active, they were involved in 17 different incidents. Without going through all of them, I'll be highlighting a few more before I finally get to the motives of the gang, the conspiracy theories that swirl around the old man, the giant and the killer, and finally some recent events in the timeline of the story that have happened as recently as January 2020. Our story continues in Anderlunes, an area located in the Belgian province of Hanou, about a 30-minute drive just north of the French border. At 6.40pm on December 1st, 1983, two passers-by from the jewellery store in the Rue de la Station see two young girls running with fear in their eyes. They were running to the headmistress of their primary school to get her to call the police. By 6.50pm, when the gendarme of Andalus arrive at number 80 of the Rue de la Station, they discover a massacre that defies any imagination in terms of horror. At 7.05pm, a black Gulf GTI is discovered on fire in the local forest. At the jewellery shop, the police discover the bodies of Jean Zuzemak, 43 years old, and his wife Maria Christina Salamanca, 38 years old, who had been running the shop for 10 years. The couple had two children, Sylvie, who was then 16 years old, and Karine, who had just turned 12. The two girls were studying in a room above the store when the events started to unfold, and no customers were present in the store at the time. At the end of a long day, a tired Maria rested on the sofa in her living room while her husband finished working in his study at the back of the building. Two or three individuals made their way directly to the living room. Maria awoke from her rest and wanting to get up to serve the people she thought were customers arriving to make a purchase. Without warning, the robbers immediately opened fire on the young woman who was hit by several bullets in the legs and chest. Maria then managed to travel another five or six metres before collapsing on the carpet. In a brutal execution, like in the murder of Elsie DeWitt at the petrol station in Neville, the murderer went to the body of the young woman and finished her off with three bullets to the head. Jean Zizemak had recently been the victim of a robbery and had purchased a pistol, convinced that a weapon would one day be of use to him. Zizemak heard the shots from the living room in his study and grabbed his 38 calibre to protect his wife. The jeweller opened the door ajar and was positioned for a split second from which he could shoot the gangster crouched by the body of Maria. A second man in the room shouted, quote, Shoot, but then shoot anyway. End quote. Jean then collapsed to the floor after being hit. A member of the gang walked over and shot him with two bullets to the head. 
Then he crouched down and snatched the weapon, an armorless special calibre 38 with registration number 581479 from Jean's hands. According to testimony from one of the children, the killer spoke French, apparently not wearing gloves or masks, and one of the members had blonde hair. The child, alarmed by the shots, ran to the stairs and watched the whole scene unfold. The girl witnessed the murder of her father. At one point she softly begged, Mommy, Daddy. Fortunately the gangsters did not hear her muffled cry, otherwise the story of the massacre would have been even more tragic. The family had surveillance cameras installed in the jewellery store, but the killers destroyed them before fleeing. They took off in a black Gulf GTI. As I previously said, the car was found destroyed by fire in the forest of Herps, just a few kilometres from the scene of the crime. In their search of the forest, the gendarme recovered another car that was used by the gang for another robbery in June of 1983. Inside the car, the police found two sacks containing a few alarm clocks, jewels and two decorative pins. Again, the gang had an exact plan and carried it out to the letter. During the investigation, the police concluded that whoever carried out the robbery and subsequent murder of Jean and his wife must have known the area very well as they were able to make their way through the forest at night without getting lost, with the police on their trail and securely getting away without detection. It was thought that the gang must have explored and located the layout of the jewellery store in advance, as like in previous robberies, they knew exactly what they were looking for. Like I have mentioned in previous incidents, how did the investigators know that it was the gang of Neville who carried out the robbery? The bullets that were discovered in the jewellery store were found to match others that were fired by two weapons that were used in the Colorite in Neville on September 16th, a Colt 45 and a 7.65mm pistol. This it seems was the gang's calling card. As 1983 came to a close, the police were still asking the same questions. Who were these men? What were their motives? Where would they strike next? As 1984 came onto the horizon, the police were waiting to see what came next, and then, nothing. For the entirety of 1984, the gang fell silent. No car hijackings, supermarket smash and grabs, shootings or frantic getaways. Had the gang disappeared? Were they arrested for other crimes and sent to prison? Had they even left the country? There were too many questions and not enough answers. Then on September 22nd, 1985, the gang resurfaced in a final act of devastation. First, they broke into a well-known Volkswagen distribution centre in Erp, Kerp, a village in Brabant between Brussels and Leuven. The gang, like in previous robberies, came prepared and knew the route to gain access to the large building, were looking for a specific model of Volkswagen Golf to steal. They came in the middle of the night and made a clean getaway without being spotted by security guards on duty. Five days later, the gang returned. On September 27th, 1985, the gang attacked not one but two department stores on the same day with unprecedented violence. The first raid happened at the Del Haas department store on Brande Lude, about 20 kilometres south of Brussels. At 8.07pm, a dark car stopped in the parking lot of a restaurant near the department store. Three individuals, one of them with an impressive stature, emerges from the black grey car. Their faces are hidden behind carnival masks, and all three are armed. In another incident in October 1983, in the Del Haas in Bersail, the gang grabbed a medical student and they pushed him into the department store. They used the same method again in Branalude. They took a 12-year-old child hostage who, while waiting for his parents to return from the drugstore, was riding his bicycle in circles in the parking lot. One of the masked men grabs the child off his bicycle and drags him several feet across the ground to the entrance of the department store. The trio moved towards the main entrance of the department store. They were using the child as a human shield. 
As they made their way into the shop, a customer by the name of Josiane Platan is on her way out. Without warning, a shot is fired and hits Josiane. The gang member who was holding the child by his hair makes his way to the sales room with two other members of the group. Hearing the shots outside, everyone inside the store runs and takes cover. Customers hide behind the racks of goods while staff members car in the warehouse at the back of the store. A heavily built man seems to be in charge and orders the customers, quote, all lie on the ground, lie down or die, end quote. The kidnapped child is released for a moment and the largest gang member turns to a customer and orders him to follow him to the director's desk. Before the customer has time to explain that he's not the manager, two shots are fired in his direction, luckily without hitting him. Two of the three gang members then rush to the administrator's desk. They wear gloves and stuff the banknotes into a large travel bag. The telephone is then taken apart so the police cannot be called, and they return to the sales floor where the third gang member takes the child hostage again. He presses the barrel of a pistol to his neck and in a cool demeanour reminds cashiers and customers to kneel obediently. A customer who does not follow that order quickly enough is shot by a volley from another member of the gang. Unfortunately, Roger Engel Benign will not survive his injuries. The second person is killed in quick succession during the robbery. According to witnesses at the store, the gang showed no remorse during the whole event. Soon after this, one of the members of the gang tells the cashier that they must collect the money from all the cash registers and put it in a travel bag that he gives her. He also adds, quick or I'll shoot the boy. The gang then make their way from the store to a waiting getaway car. As they are leaving, one of the three men sees a father with his son in a van. The Jorsky family has just arrived at the department store. In addition to his 17-year-old son, Bozidar Dorovsky sits in the front of his van waiting for the return of his wife and daughter. Fate, it seems, made them cross paths with the gang of Neville. In what witnesses have described as a military training exercise, the gang move across the car park together. Just as they get several yards from the van, a gang member fires his weapon and shatters the windshield. In the melee, Bozidar Drowski is hit and collapses on the wheel of his van. He would later die that evening from his injuries. Bozidar's 17-year-old son is also badly injured by several bullets to the chest and to his shoulder. As soon as the assault is over, the gang are already on their way to Oversee, a 15-minute drive northeast from Brandeulud. The emergency services arrive to find customers in shock and dazed by what they have witnessed. Some are unable to speak. Others give confused descriptions of the robbery. Fortunately, gendarmes established that the kidnapped child was left unharmed in the parking lot. Witnesses confirm that the killers got into a dark car that they left in the parking lot and disappeared into the night. Altogether, the robbery netted the gang 388,000 francs. After 15 minutes of hard driving, the gang arrived at the Del Haas department store in Oversee. The second act of violence is about to commence. The time is 8.27pm, exactly 20 minutes after the gang made their way into the Del Haas department store in Branalud. They are again wearing carnival masks with long coats like the type army personnel may wear. As the gang of Nevilles are well known throughout the country by this stage, one of the men, the giant, is spotted getting out of a Golf GTI with two other men. Before entering the department store, the killers bear down on the Nocht family. Stefan Nocht is killed instantly. Perhaps the gangsters intended to take their 14-year-old son hostage, just like in Brandy Allude. This time, one of the gangsters is on the lookout outside the building. So why the sudden change in tactic from 20 minutes before? Investigators assume that the gang knew that the police were on the lookout for the three men after the incident in Bran No doubt calls would have been made for all 31 Del Haas department stores in Brussels 
and therefore also an oversee. According to witnesses, the giant enters the store brandishing his gun along with a second member of the gang. Panic immediately arises at the checkout. The customers automatically lie flat on their stomachs and the cashiers are told to open the cash drawers. One of the department store workers, 37-year-old Rosa van Kildonk, panics and can't seem to open her cash register. Almost immediately, one of the gang members pulls the trigger and Rosa is shot in the head. At this point, the other gang members goes to the administrator's room where he demands money. It is pointed out to the man that the caretaker, who he happened to come across, doesn't have the key to the room as it was in the possession of a member of staff designated to guard the security of the store. Again, like in previous incidents, the telephone is destroyed this time by several shots from a gang member. He also locks witnesses in an adjoining room. The gang then make their getaway in a Golf GTI with just over 900,000 francs. As investigators arrived at the scene, they came across another two bodies, Jean-Pierre Basso and Leon Fine. Leon, a 55-year-old former executive of the Copine Bank from Brussels, had returned from the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. He was on his way to buy a newspaper. In what turned out to be a brutal attack, two shots were fired in his direction and then his killer approached to turn the body over and finish it with nine rounds to the kidney area. Finally, in the parking lot, the gendarme also found the body of Luke Benenkins, a 31-year-old man who posted posters for his father, CVP Councillor of Oversea. He was standing on a ladder at the time of the attack and was probably killed for witnessing the whole event. So it's at this point where I'll move to the gang's last and bloodiest incident. It took place three months after the attack in Oversea on November 9th, 1985, again on a Delhaas department store, this time in Alast, 31 kilometers northwest from Brussels in the Flemish province of East Flanders. It's Saturday, 7.30 p.m. when a Volkswagen Golf GTI turns into the car park. On the other side of the department store, the gendarme patrol responsible for the increased security of the department store leaves. Three armed men step out of the car, their faces hidden behind scarves and balaclavas. Like the incidents in Brennelude and Overseas in September, the gang were dressed in long overcoats or parkas and they wore military combat shoes. In charge again is the giant, described on this occasion at least 1 meter 90 centimeters tall. Witnesses say that he was in complete command, a command that acts with military discipline and accuracy. The three men enter the department store through the back entrance and panic immediately breaks out. They shoot at anything that moves and several people are injured. The giant shoots two customers from less than a meter away, who unfortunately for them happens to get into his line of sight. The cashiers are told to empty their cash registers. What has been described as a perfect operation, the entire raid takes less than three minutes, a time span in which the robbers fire at least 40 shots. In the parking lot, it becomes a bloodbath. A nine-year-old boy, his parents and his sister are mowed down. Only the boy will survive the slaughter. Customers who are sitting in their cars are being shot at. The Golf GTI reverses out of the parking lot. From the open trunk, the giant shoots without stopping. Police arrive on the scene but are no match for the weaponry that the gang possess. The Golf GTI races off followed by a police car and a gendarme in tow. They try to chase the much faster Golf but they have no chance of catching it and they come to a stop after 7 kilometers. The police on scene at the department store find 8 dead and as many seriously injured. The cartridges used by the gang appear to be loaded with a special type of projectile, 9 to 12 lead spheres with a combined weight of 32 grams. This is ammunition that is rarely used in Belgium, again hinting at the gang's possible military connections. 
Also, the shell casings found appear to have been previously used and refilled, a practice used by quite a few members of militia clubs. Finally, police notice that the men once again managed to avoid all roadblocks and the numerous police and gendarme patrols sent out to the scene. It is assumed that the gang had a device or a radio that could track the movements of police and gendarme so that they could slip away easily. So that brings us to the end of 1985 and from here the gang disappear. When researching the story I came across multiple theories and explanations behind the gang's three years of terror. Like any unsolved crime or mystery you can go down plenty of wormholes. In order not to do that I'll list just a few. During the investigation of the gang two garages in which weapons were found that could be attributed to the group were discovered. These garages were linked to several Brussels businessmen. During the period of the gang's existence, various victims of the group were reported to be owners of these garages. As investigations continued, it was noted that one of the garages was reportedly rented by the company Program, a subsidiary of Bank Copine. This bank ran into problems in 1982 when it appeared that a number of executives had heavily tampered with the accounts. An external audit showed that there was a gap of about 1 billion franc in the bank at the Bank Copine. Did the gang have links to individuals in these companies who owned them money? Did they lose money themselves? Again, I couldn't find any link that could establish this. In Belgium during the 1980s, state security was compromised on several occasions. After this, a policy was pursued to find the perpetrators and stop these threats. According to rumours, the far-right organisation, the Westland New Post, was infiltrated by the government as they were seen to be involved. Other theories existed, stating that some gendarmes allegedly had close ties with the extreme right and by the fact that the robberies were carried out with military precision. It is believed that the gang possibly consisted of ex-gendarmes and right-wing extremists and wanted to weaken the country with their actions. No convincing evidence has been found linking the far-right Westland New Post to the gang's crimes. In the 1980s, Belgium had a large collection of criminal organisations such as the WNP, the Front de la Jeunesse and several others. No matter if these organisations were left or right, they had one thing in common, they were dangerous to the state. Unexpectedly, the state security decided not to continue the investigation unit dedicated to mapping these subversive groups. A bizarre decision to take in light of the criminal activity throughout the country. In the period when Belgium experienced the greatest post-war terrorist acts, the top of the state security stopped investigations into extreme groups. Section B2C of the state security was disbanded. The main question, why? Again, this is something that I couldn't find an answer to. So let's turn our attention to who the gang could possibly be. I came across many different articles and websites claiming that certain groups or individuals were involved, and in order to avoid reaming off lists of people, I've narrowed it down to just a few. So one theory is that the gang wasn't really a gang at all. It is claimed that they were different people who didn't know each other who committed the robberies for completely different reasons. The men obtained their weapons by renting them at various locations in and around Brussels. After use, the weapons were returned to the owner so that another gang could use them. Another theory points to the fact that it had to be one gang because the weapons were used multiple times in various incidents and they were able to avoid getting caught by the police at every turn. So did the gang have inside knowledge of the police? Were they former military men who knew how to outrun the police using specialist tactics? And why did they stop in 1985? Some theories say that after 1985 no robberies and murders were committed by the Gang of Neville because most of the big gangsters in Belgium were arrested after 1985. 
so did their secrets go to prison with them? During this period in Belgium, there were multiple gangs operating at the same time, aside from the Gang of Neville. The population of Belgium were familiar with the names of the Bahush, Beher Gang, the Lala Gang, the Destart Gang, Les Borans, and others. It turns out that in and around Brussels, there were a dozen garages filled with weapons, grenades, explosives, combat clothing, disguises, and vehicles. This material could be rented and returned after use. Small criminal organisations also committed robberies in this way, with a gang of Neville's, one of the other gangs, by another name. Tired of the escalating violence from within their country, the general public demanded that criminal gangs be countered by reform police forces with better weaponry to protect them. By early 1989, the last member of the Lada gang was shot. Also, members of the Bahush Bayer organisation of the Destart gang and others were behind bars. The age of gangs that roamed and terrorised the streets of Belgium were over. Another theory is that the Gang of Nevilles could have possibly been from the Gang Hemers, named after Patrick Hemers, who was part of the Brussels underground crime scene in the 1980s and was leader of the Gang of Hemers, which also consisted of Philippe Lacroix, Marc Van Damme, Denise Tarak, Barassi Barami, and Kaplan Marat. Because of his violent robberies on several money trucks, he was considered number one of the country's top criminals. In 1989, he even became known internationally after it turned out that he had kidnapped former Prime Minister Paul van den Boyens. Physically, Hamer stood out for his large body size, striking blue eyes and blonde hair. He was sometimes nicknamed Le Grand Blonde. On May 14, 1993, he committed suicide in his prison cell. Could he have been the giant? It was concluded that the gang Hamers were not part of the Gang of Nevilles as they were deemed ordinary criminals who stole from trucks that transported money and were not sophisticated enough to carry out some of the incidents the Gang of Nevilles were responsible for. Our last possible link to the gang was called the Gang of Bus Road. The gang were reportedly equipped with heavy weapons and they took a military approach to their operation. The gang included Philip de Stork, Leopold van Osbroek, Aspilos Papalopoulos and Dominic Selassie. This gang of criminals became known as the Bass Rod Gang. They acted like real soldiers during their various thefts and money transport robberies. Philip de Stork was deemed to be the leader and Dominic Selassie were the brains behind the gang. During the robberies, de Stork was described as unhinged. They were compared to the Gang of Nevilles, especially after the gang's last fate in 1985 in Alast. During the investigation, the police were in the dark until it turned out that Philip de Stork was present in the Delhas in Alast on the day of the robbery. So just to clarify, there is no information about the role of de Stark. Some reports have said that he was the lookout and others say he took part in a violent robbery. Although de Stark has never been officially convicted for the facts surrounding the Neville's gang, he remains the number one prime suspect in the minds of investigators. On March 6, 1986, de Stark was arrested by the Deramont Prosecutor's Office. He was suspected of being a member of the Brass Rod Gang and suspected of being part of the Neville Gang. Other members of the Bass Road Gang had already been arrested. On June 15, 1987, the trial around de Stark and his colleagues started. De Stark was sentenced to 20 years, as were Leopold van Osbroek, Dominic Selassie and Ostros Papalopoulos. De Stark was not convicted for the facts in the case of the Gang of Nevilles. And just before I finish off, I did say that there was some news of the gang in January of 2020. A fresh bid was made for the names and details of the gang at the beginning of this year. A photograph of an unknown male 
sent in 1986 to officers investigating the notorious group, was reissued to the media on the order of a judge in a renewed attempt to secure justice for the killer's victims. Standing in a forest, the suspect is pictured holding a semi-automatic SPAS-12 combat shotgun made by the Italian company Franchi. Prosecutors don't have long to solve the case as a special extension to the statute of limitation runs out in 2025. According to The Guardian, quote, On issuing the photograph, Eric Van Dus, a spokesman for the Federal Prosecutor's Office, said, quote, The person who gave this photo said that the individual who is in the photo is a very important person in a Brabant killer's case. End quote. Investigators' efforts to identify this person since then have come to nothing. But since the file was started from scratch, the decision was made to call the public to try to finally find this individual because it is potentially interesting. This is another step in the investigation, end quote. At the time of recording, the case remains unsolved. Thanks very much for joining me on this journey through the Gang of Nevilles. I really hope you enjoyed it. Some of the sources that I used for this episode was benvanil.com and The Guardian. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath, with additional material by Andrew McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify And you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.